Hello, and welcome to the Christ Church Cathedral Podcast. This is the sermon from our past Sunday, recorded live from the cathedral. We hope these words will really speak to your heart and mind. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, everyone loves a classic, like the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe it's a mid-Lent thing, but I've been thinking about butter tarts. <laughs> it's a bit of, I think it's a bit of a mirage. But my grandmother used to make butter tarts, and they were gorgeous. They were, they were runny and caramelly. Crucially and properly, they were made with currants. <laughs> I know that's controversial. <laughs> she made them every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, and every Easter, and she always made them for my birthday. Thing is, they were more than the sum of their parts. They tasted of, of home, of childhood, and of love. Now, since my grandmother died, my sister, who is a master baker, is taking over the butter tart making duties. And that's great, and I'm grateful. Except she messes with them. And she'll add nuts. Or worse, she'll leave out the currants. And I tell her, don't, just don't. You don't mess with perfection. If you change the recipe, you change the message of the butter tarts. And I like the message of home and childhood and love. It's kind of how I feel about the parable of the prodigal son. It's a classic, right? Many of us have read this parable over and over and over again for years and years. We've seen the beautiful Rembrandt painting over and over again. And we can be forgiven for thinking that we, well, we've heard it all. And that maybe it doesn't have much left to reveal to us. We can even try and mess with it. We can try and tell the story from every conceivable angle to squeeze yet one more theological nuance from 2,000 years of telling and retelling. But at the end of the day, it's like my grandmother's butter tarts. It's kind of great just the way it is. But you know, I would wager that we probably haven't, in fact, exhausted its meaning. I will, though, if you'll forgive me, include just a little bit more information that the well-meaning compilers of the lectionary have left out by omitting a few lines of text immediately before our parable so that we can get a little closer to the point of it, because context matters. Because this parable doesn't stand on its own. It stands in a series of parables, as you'll hear. These are the preceding few verses. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, Jesus told parables, these short stories with particular and and possibly even strange emphasis. I say strange because they almost always don't make what we might think of as real-world sense. But he told them to speak spiritual truth, to say something about what God's love looks and feels like, to say something about what the kingdom of God is all about. But the problem with what he had to say is that it seemed pretty different from what the Pharisees had to say. But sometimes it's like that, as we know, to have a prophetic voice is is to be a threat. And in the Gospels, the Pharisees are portrayed as being obsessed with human-made rules instead of focusing on and living out God's love. As institutional leaders, They were the mediators of religious things, the dispensers of mercy, of forgiveness, of community restitution, etc., etc. They were also portrayed as the gatekeepers against these things, perhaps being needlessly obstructionist or elaborate and wrong-headed about the content and the purpose of God's law, often totally missing the point. Now, clearly, in this situation in Luke 15, that's what's happening. Tax collectors and other kinds of sinners are coming to Jesus because they can, because there was something about his teaching and his presence that was accessible. It was open. It opened the scriptures and their traditions to them in a new way. Something about Jesus made them think that maybe they could be included too. And instead of rebuking the tax collectors and sinners who were coming to him to learn, to engage, to ask questions, perhaps for the first time in their lives, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who were griping about this. But it's interesting that he chooses these strange stories to do that. And they are a little odd. For instance, no no self-respecting shepherd leaves 99 sheep unguarded to go and look for the lost one. If he did, he'd likely come back to considerably more than one missing. And why ever would anyone turn a house upside down to look for one small coin or to rejoice in its finding in such an over-the-top way? And what about the father's reaction to the return of his son in the third of these three connected stories in Luke. Isn't it excessive? There's something here in all three stories about the condition of being lost. To be lost is to be unable to find your way. 
being lost means that something has been taken away or something can't be recovered. But in these stories, the outcome is different. Because of the diligence, the unreasonable persistence of the one who looks for the lost thing or the lost person, the state of being lost is reversed. In each story, what we witness is not reasonable behavior. I know we often read the parable of the prodigal and identify with the younger son, but based on its context in the third of three parables, I'd like to suggest that it's really a story about the father. Because like the lost sheep and the lost coin, it explores what we can know about God's love for us. So that being so, the first question I have is, why do we call the son prodigal? I mean, he's a spendthrift and he's cruel. If you ask for your inheritance early, it pretty much means that you've told your dad to drop dead. He's amoral. He's obviously not into delayed gratification. In short, he's prodigal. But he's kind of understandable in a bad boy sort of way. It's the father that to me is the real mystery. His love is unreasonable. It's too generous. It's too forgiving. He holds nothing back. He doesn't make the younger son pay. His love makes us uncomfortable, maybe even resentful. It offends us. This parable, like the ones just before it, just doesn't make sense by human standards. And it's no wonder that it offended the Pharisees. And that is its power. It tells us about the character of the Father's love for us. Prodigality is defined as profuse or wasteful expenditure. That's the first meaning. And by those lights, who then is the prodigal? The son or the father? And then there's the third meeting, according to Webster, yielding abundantly. That would be the father's love. I'm so reminded, as I often am, and gratefully so, of last week's Old Testament lesson. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord your God. This is such a great parable to consider at the midway point in Lent because it reminds us, as one commentator said this week, what's really going on in Luke 15 is that we're not here, first of all, being given stories of the go and do likewise variety. This parable is not in scripture, first of all, to encourage fathers to be forgiving of their naughty kids, any more than the first two stories were an instruction to shepherds or a cautionary tale to take better care of your fiscal assets. No, all three reveal the heart of God, a heart that's broken clean into by lostness, but a heart that sings with a joy as wide as the cosmos when even the silliest sheep or the meanest of sons comes back and is found again. 
This commentator goes on to say that as a Lenten text, Luke 15 reminds us that for all its somber tones and focus on Jesus' grim sacrifice and suffering, Lent is also a season of joy for God. Every confessed sin, every ash-smudged forehead, every Kyrie sounds in God's ears like joy because each such sentiment is being prayed, uttered, and sung by people who once were lost, but now are found. And I think what Jesus is getting at in this parable is to say that the Father and the Father's love cannot be controlled by human-made systems of religion, that God's generous mercy and forgiveness and love, as strange and as irrational as those things seem to be to our way of thinking, are not, in fact, meted out through human constructs. They just are. God just loves us. And that love isn't under human control. So I think that that brings us back to where we started, to remembering that this is a classic story with incredible depth. Classics are classics because they don't wear out. They stand the test of time. They release their truth over and over again. And we, it seems, can never get to the bottom of them probably because it's hard for us to grasp the width and the depth of God's love for us. It's supremely challenging to us. We who like to think in terms of who's in and who's out, we who like rules, we who delight in defining ourselves in opposition to each other, we who think in terms of scarcity in term, instead of abundance, we who keep score and measure out our love meagerly, it's profoundly challenging to grapple with a love like this. But as St. Paul reminds us, do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying, threats or backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. None of this phases us because, because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced, St. Paul says, that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today, tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. But the challenge doesn't end there because we need to remember also St. Paul's words to us through his letter to the Corinthians that we just read this morning. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So not only is our challenge to accept the otherworldliness of God's unlimited love for us, it's also our God-given task to embody that love in our own lives, in our own church, in our own communities. So it seems this classic parable, the parable of the prodigal son, has, has more to teach us. 
after all. Thanks be to God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Christ Church Cathedral. Audio editing and original theme by Eduardo Farias. We hope you join us again soon. Have a blessed day.